Well, good morning, church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. The title of my sermon today is called Judging Jesus' Way. It's no joke. And, um, well, we're welcoming in the month of March. Isn't that crazy? It's, it's three quarter, yeah, the third month into the new year. And spring is supposed to be on the 20th. And with spring, comes some seasonal allergies, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with, and millions of others are. But um, I can't believe that, you know, such small particles that are flying in the air, these pollens, get into our system and and wreak havoc and, and cause us to sneeze, swell up, you know, blow our noses and such. These, these particles, they're 100,000 100, times smaller than uh, 10 centimeters. So 10, or sorry, a centimeter. A centimeter is yay big, right? So imagine 100,000 times smaller than that. Well, it's amazing that these things can do such damage. Um, and when I think, I think about allergies, I really pity those that have food allergies. So there are those people that can't have gluten or those people that can't have peanuts. Um, you know, I, and, and some of you maybe are, you know, kids that are, are affected by this have to carry out, carry around an EpiPen. You know, it's, it's something that, you know, I'm, I'm glad I don't have, but at the same time, I, you know, I, I feel for you guys. But having said that, having said this, this statement about allergies, here's this Hollywood take on, on food-related allergy reactions. So I'll have that clip played. clip of Will Smith in this movie, Hitch. But in all seriousness, um, allergies are a serious thing. In fact, if, if not dealt with immediately, you could actually die from uh, an allergy not, that's not treated with some sort of drug intervention. And you know, the Bible says the same thing about our lives. And if we have sin in our lives, If we leave a little sin unchecked in our lives, it can grow out of control and potentially, potentially destroy us. 
Maybe you've heard of this, this quote, so a thought, reap an action, so an action, reap a habit, so a habit, reap a character, so a character, reap a destiny. It can work both ways, positively and negatively, can't it? You know, we may think that a little lie or cheating on our taxes is, is not gonna harm anyone, uh, but an unrepentant sinner who lives a life of sinning without remorse is not only danger to himself, but also to the body of Christ. And I wanna tell you right off the bat that the sermon topic that I'll be preaching on today is this really tough one, I'm not gonna lie. I'll be introducing the section of 1 Corinthians that talks about sexual integrity. And then Pastor Jonathan will be following up with two more sermons um, in, the, in the following weeks. And so we will be dealing with chapters five through seven of 1 Corinthians. And we will see Paul's exhortation to keep our sexual integrity. You know, there was one other time in my life uh, in ministry that I've had to talk uh, about sex within uh, uh, a church, and that was to a bunch of high schoolers. And so, as I prepared for this sermon, I found that at its core, there was no different. There's really no different. Um, the message that I preached was this. The underlying message is this, a pure and holy God demands that we live a pure and holy life. I'll say that again, a pure and holy God demands we live a pure and holy life. And in dealing with the topic of immorality in the church, we need to understand that this is a serious matter because holiness and purity are the traits that distinguishes followers of Jesus from the rest of the world. But before we uh, jump into the, the passage today, let's review uh, some of our central points that uh, we've addressed so far. So in chapter one, uh, talks about we were sinners. We are now born. Uh, we are now born again in Christ. In Him we have redemption, holiness, and righteousness. <clears throat> in chapter two, karma sees Jesus and His cross as foolishness because His cross removes what you and I rightly deserve. Chapter three goes on to say stuff about the only building that lasts is built on Jesus's foundation out of Jesus' mindset and resembles him. And that could only be one thing, that's making disciples of Jesus. And just last week in chapter four, um, we talked about, or Pastor Jonathan talked about, our role model <clears throat> being Jesus and those who imitate him. And so for today's passage, we'll be reading the entire chapter of <clears throat> chapter five, and that's verses one through 13. If you have your Bibles, open them up and you can read along. Uh, on the screen as well. Romans, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are ignorant, or sorry, arrogant. Ought you not to rather uh, mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one thing, I'm sorry, on the one who did such a thing. 
You are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is, is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a, living, a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral uh, of this world, or the, greeter, the greedy and the swindlers, or the adulterers, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Well, in this chapter, it's, it's pretty clear in the first two verses what the problem and the solution are. The problem is that there is sexual immorality among you. Pretty easy to identify. And we're talking about um, the word porneia in the Greek. And this word is the equivalent of fornication. Now, fornication is an all-encompassing term that covers any type of sexual immorality or activity outside of marriage. And this includes adultery, incest, lesbianism, homosexuality, bestiality, etc., etc. And just to clarify, the definition of adultery is simply just sex outside of marriage. Now keep in mind, the Corinthian attitude towards sex was heavily influenced by Greek culture. Greeks considered that sex was this biological need, just like we need to eat, and we need to sleep and drink. And this, this need always, always needs to be constantly uh, fulfilled. There was no sacredness that the Greeks gave uh, sex in, in the way that the Bible intended. You see, the, the Old Testament takes immorality so seriously that it is actually punishable by death. For example, if a man and a woman are caught in adultery, both are supposed to be stoned. And then contrary to popular belief, you know, sex you know, people believe, oh, you know, sex is dirty, it's sinful, you know, so they shouldn't talk about it, etc. blah, blah, blah. God created sex for human beings and actually called it good. And God says, when you give sex its proper place, that is the marriage bed between male and female, that's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, okay? <laughs> you will reap the fullest kind of blessing and reward because that's the way God designed us to be fulfilled. 
And so this passage, uh, a believer in the Corinthian church was committing incest with his stepmother. His stepmother was a non-believer. So this accused person, this Christian, was fornicating. And then on top of that, he was unequally yoked with a non-Christian. So it's like a, a double whammy here. And the Bible doesn't say specifically what happened to his father. So he was either dead or the father had divorced. But this sin, this sin was serious. You see, incest was not something that had occurred um, and in the past with this person. It was this continual sin indicated by the use of the word has his father's wife. And so Paul describes this fornication as something that even the pagans found detestable. So the Roman law was that incest was forbidden throughout the empire. And here, here's this Corinthian church tolerating the sin and even being proud of it. So I could see Paul doing one of these um, in the next slide here. One of these Captain Picard face palms. If you don't know who Captain Picard is, he's in from Star Trek, the next generation. So he's saying, you should be mourning. You shouldn't be proud of doing this. And so we've talked about this, the problem and the solution is right there in verse two. Be removed from among you. He didn't actually have to think twice about this, the Apostle Paul. His solution was get this guy out of the church, remove him. And so why is removal the solution? And the answer can be summed up in one word, and it's this, it's holiness. A pure God, a pure and holy God demands his children live a pure and holy life. These are the key traits that distinguish followers of Jesus from the world. And I said that in the beginning. As Christians, we need to be set apart from the world unto the Lord and living by God's standards. Let me clarify that God isn't calling us, as Christians, to be perfect, but to actually to be distinct from the world. And God's not asking for perfection. It's rather, it's the desire for perfection. He wants to see this in us, this desire to live for Christ. It's the desire to be holy and to live a pure life. First Peter um, chapter 1, verses 13 through 16 says this. Peter writes to the believers, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in, the, in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves, also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, holiness is not living a perfect life because we'll never be able to do that on our own strength. But Fritz, what about... Didn't Jesus say something about you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? It's true. He did say that. He did that, say that in Matthew uh, chapter 5. It seems in this verse, Jesus demands us to be perfect. And I, you know what, for me, I, I simply can't live up to that. I would have to agree with you. 
If you read this verse by itself without any context, Jesus seems to be telling us, live a perfect life. After all, who can say that God, um, that we've loved God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength? Um, nobody can say that. And that's a, that's a commandment that, that God gives us. So what is Jesus saying about being perfect? So it's important to know that when we're trying to derive the meaning from a Bible verse, that we have to sort of know the surrounding context of that verse. And so I'll give you a little background of Matthew chapter 5. This is a chapter where we have the famous Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus had come to this part of the sermon where he's talking about loving your enemies. So this perfection Jesus spoke of was referring to this kind of love that children of God should have. The Greek word for perfect here, uh, for perfect here is teleos, and it can mean perfect, but is more usually referring to having a a perfect, mature, and complete love, a a a wholeness. And in other words, we must imitate a perfect, mature, and complete love shown by the Father and the Son is a complete love extending to those who are your enemies, those who hate you and who spitefully use you. So if a man can't, could live in love the way Jesus loved, uh, as he told us in chapter five of Matthew, he would be truly perfect, wouldn't he? He would never hate, slander, or, or speak evil of another person. He would never lust in his mind or heart and not covet anything. He would never lie and always be truthful. And he would let God defend his personal right and not take it upon himself to defend his own rights. And he would always love his neighbors, even his enemies. You know, in reality, Jesus was the only man able to to do all of these things and live this perfect life with perfect love. As Christians, We're still sinners, we're saved by grace. And here's the key idea. We are imputed, imputed is a fancy word for being given. We're given righteousness, a righteous uh, perfection through Jesus Christ. Our label of perfection only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And as Paul put it, it's a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So when God looks upon a person who accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, he doesn't see our imperfections, our shortcomings, our sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. I want to also say that holiness is not following strict rules to gain brownie points with God, his work-based salvation, You know, that's called legalism, and and the religious leaders of the day were practicing that. All that leads to is this holier-than-thou complex, and it's basically, look at all the good things that I've done. But you know what real holiness is? Holiness is living in relationship with God through through the gracious saving blood of Jesus. It's living in relationship with God 
And part of this is having the standards that God's, God wants us to live by. So that the unbelieving world would know that we belong to him. See, God's ultimate desire for his people is that we be holy and conformed into the image of his son, Jesus. Holiness is God's will for our lives. And so now, getting back to our passage here in 1 Corinthians 5. If we allow members who are known to be committing sin to continue fellowshipping with brothers and sisters, what we're doing is we're, we're greatly risking that sin contaminating the rest of the body. So you've heard the expression, one, apple, one rotten apple spoils the barrel. Well, Jesus is, or sorry, Paul is saying this, removal is the only solution. And then he, get, he then gives the church uh, in Corinth some of this Passover imagery that most of the Jews in that congregation would be able to understand. And it's this, this um, idea of unleavened bread. To better grasp this, um, you actually have to know how Israelites uh, made bread. So uh, for most of you bakers, you'd start off with this lump of dough, right? You'd, you'll knead it, roll it, etc. You place it in your container to be baked. But before you put it in the oven, what you would do is you'd take off a piece of this, um, this bread or this lump of dough. Take that piece and you would put it in some water. And then over time, that little piece would actually sour, okay? And, and you'd basically call this the leaven. It's called the starter. And then you would place this in, in the ball of you know, ready-made dough and go ahead and bake it. And that would allow the bread, of course, to rise, right? So in, the, in this illustration, what Paul was trying to do is this. He's trying to bring this idea of bringing something from the past into the present. Something from the past into the present. He was saying, don't bring this chunk of our past, the sins of your old life, into your new life in Christ because we're supposed to be unleavened Christians. You see, when the Israelites were in Egypt, uh, under the leadership of Moses, at the time that they were going to actually leave, you know, the great exodus, they were told by God, you know what, this is the time we are going to separate. So what did God do to commemorate the separation? The first part of this was basically painting the, the doorposts with the blood of, uh, of a lamb so that the angel of death would pass over their house and not kill their firstborn. The sacrifice of a lamb was a symbol of Israel's separation from Egypt and freedom from slavery. In the same way, the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God, is the separator of the believer from the world. So that's the first part of Passover. The second part is this. They were told to leave the leaven out of the bread and only take unleavened bread out of Egypt. God did not want any remnant of the old Egyptian life carried over into their new life. Friends, in the same way, Jesus, the pure unleavened bread of life, sustains us as Christians. And we are not to bring our old, back our old sinful life 
into this new life. Sin is like this leaven or this yeast that's in the bread. Although you may be small, it, it actually has a powerful effect, doesn't it? Just like we were talking about earlier with allergies, pollen and peanuts and, and such. I want to share with you this quote from one of my favorite movies, or series of movies. And it's from Star Wars The Last Jedi. It reads this. Let the past die. Kill it if you have to. That's the only way to become what you were meant to be. Kylo Ren. <laughs> now, before you start judging me, I'm in no way saying, be evil like Kylo Ren, go kill your dad, go to try to kill Princess Leia. Not at all. What I do want to point out is this. Kylo Ren was this driven individual, and he was one that would not let anything stand in his way in his quest to rule the galaxy. You know, but for him, it meant cutting off all ties to the past. And so likewise, we as Christians should have this attitude about sin. We should not, we should let our old selves die. We should renounce our flesh and lustful desires so that we can become what Jesus Christ intended us to be. And that is bearers of light in this dark world. Second uh, Corinthians five seventeen says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone; the new has come. All our sins were nailed to the cross of Christ. It was buried with Him, and we were raised to life, to walk in newness of life, as Jesus was. So, how does how does a church go about disciplining? A member. So before we move on to verses three and five, I want to remind you that the steps involved uh, surrounding sort of church conflict is, is actually found in Matthew chapter 18. And so if we're thinking, you know, what would, what would Jesus, uh, what would he, he have done, right? WWJD, what would Jesus do? Jesus actually gives us the step-by-step -step guide of what to do and he guides us through on how a believer uh, and how a church should discipline a believer and what kind of rebuking should be done. And I'll read this briefly in Matthew chapter uh, 18, verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So the first two steps there, we've kept it in sort of a, a confidential sort of um, situation, but this third act here is basically bring it public. And if he listens, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, if I, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, 
there I am among you. In other words, that last little part about um, two or three people gathering together, it's saying that when you brought this person um, or, or have this, this discipline attitude uh, for this person, God, heaven, God in heaven is backing you up in this decision. So basically the, the Lord is telling us to give this, this offender a couple of chances in private. But if this person refuses to change his or her ways, and willfully keeps on saying, we must treat this person as if they were a Gentile, a, a tax collector, and then basically remove them from the congregation. And that's basically an agreement with what 1 Corinthians 5 says. The man is to be delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, this is not saying we're going to perform some sort of ritual and release him to the demons and chant and anything like that. Rather, it's the equivalent of saying, remove him from the fellowship of the church and let this person live in the world where the devil rules. So that he's the prince, in, uh, the prince of the power of, of this air, of the world. So there are, there are two other instances where uh, in the Bible we were recorded a person was handed over to Satan. First uh, Timothy talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander who, uh, who uh, basically was handed over to Satan so that they wouldn't blaspheme. And then there's also the Old Testament story of Job's affliction. All of this is done in hopes that the person will come to their senses and repent of their sin after being chastised by the rod of Satan. See, without the support or help of fellowship and, and maybe even the physical affliction that they occur, maybe they would, there'd be a chance that they would turn from their ways. And you know what? You'll be pleased to know that this person that was uh, accused of incest um, is mentioned again in 2 Corinthians, and he comes back to the Corinthian church and, confess, and confesses their sin. Well, Fritz, aren't we being a little bit mean and unloving in, the, in this type of situation. I'm gonna to quote to you uh, the N.T. Wright book that most of you have purchased for your, your studies in Corinthians. Page 62 talks about, um, talked to us about this. We can imagine the howls of anger at such a suggestion in today's church. It's unloving, intolerant, judgmental, Paul might well have answered, is the, loving, is the doctor unloving or judgmental when he or she tells you that you must have an operation right away? Do we want a doctor who tolerates viruses, bacteria, cancer cells? And if we say that the moral issue Paul mentions in verse 11 are not like diseases, are we so sure? Do these things build up a community or do they actually destroy it? Well, I want to answer that question. From my experience, I've seen, I've seen it destroy and divide faith communities. Brothers and sisters, cancer kills. Disease can spread throughout the body like wildfire. And so in my conservative opinion, the only option is to remove that cancer and preserve the purity of the community. And that's why Paul tells, tells the believers not to even associate and eat with those, of, those people that call themselves Christians, and yet they're guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, 
speaking abusively, drunkenness, or swindling. You see, the goal of discipline is not to be mean or cold-hearted, but to condemn sinful behavior and it's an issue. It's to issue a call of change and hopefully restor- restoration for that brother or sister. And we're to do this all in love. Friends, without a doubt, God gives us permission to judge judge fellow believers. But he also tells us to leave the judging of outsiders to the, to the, of the unchurch to him. So God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So as I uh, conclude, my exhortation to you is this. Be holy because God is holy. It's about being distinct from the world and its practices so that we can attract the world to the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, this pursuit of holiness does not end when we are born again. In fact, it's the very beginning. So when we first come to Christ, we inherit what's called positional holiness. But there's also something called practical holiness, which we actively pursue. And in this, God expects us to cultivate a lifestyle of holiness and commands us to cleanse ourselves of all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the, fairness, uh, in the fear of God. And when we cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable, we become vessels for honorable use, set apart as holy and useful to the master for every good work. You know, our battle with our old leavened selves will be a daily one. None of us is going to reach sinless perfection in this world. But praise God, he has made a provision for our sin, and that's Jesus Christ. And so if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, the 1 John 1, 9. Friends, keep this verse in your heart so that we